29, and in warning, saying that all bells must be dumb on Good Friday, the conflagration gained such headway that it could not be checked, and a large part of the old French town was reduced to ashes. Six years later another fire equally destructive, completed the work of blotting out the French town, and the old New Orleans we now know as the Spanish city which arose in its place, a city not of wood but of adobe or brick, stuccoed and tinted, of arcade blocks, galleries, jealousies, ponderous doors, and inner courts with carriage entrances from the street, and, behind, the most charming and secluded gardens, also, bowing to premiums offered by Baron Carondelet, the governor, tile roofs came into vogue, so that the city became comparatively fireproof. Much of the present-day charm of the old city is due also to the noble Andalusian, Don Andreas Almonaster Y. Roses, who having immigrated and made a great fortune in the city, became its benefactor, building schools and other public institutions. The picturesque old Cabildo, or town hall, which is now a most fascinating museum, the cathedral, which adjoins the Cabildo, and which, like it, faces Jackson Square. Formerly the Plaisterms, in front of the altar of his cathedral Don Andreas is buried, and masses are said, in perpetuity, for his soul. When the Don's young widow remarried, she and her husband were pursued by a chivalry lasting three days and three nights the most famous chivalry in the history of a city widely noted for these detestable functions. The Don's daughter, a great heiress, became the Baron Pontable and resided in magnificence in Paris, where she died, a very old woman. In 1874, in the place terms much of the early history of New Orleans, and indeed, of Louisiana, was written, here, and in the Cabildo, the transfers from flag to flag took place, ending with the ceding of Louisiana by Spain to France, and by France to the United States. At this time New Orleans had about 10,000 inhabitants, most of the whites being Creoles. Harry's Dixon, who knows a great deal about New Orleans declared in an article published some years ago, that outside Lower Louisiana the word, Creole, is still misunderstood, and added this definition of the term, a person of mixed French and Spanish blood, born in Louisiana, as I understand it, however, the blood need not necessarily be mixed, but may be pure Spanish or pure French, or again, there may be some admixture of English blood, the word itself was, I am informed, originally Spanish and signified an American descended from Spaniards, later it got into the language of the French West Indies, once it was imported, to Louisiana, about the end of the 18th century, by refugees who arrived in considerable numbers from San Domingo, after the revolution of the blacks there, thus, the early French settlers did not use the word, if any misapprehension as to whether a Creole is a white person does still exist, that misunderstanding is, I believe, to be traced to the doors of an old-time cheap burlesque theater in Chicago, where the late impresario, Sam T. Jack, put on a show in which mulatto women were billed as a galaxy of Creole beauties. This show traveled about the country libeling the Creoles and doubtless causing many persons of that class which attended Sam T. Jack's shows, to believe that Creole means something like quadroon. But when the show got to Baton Rouge the manager was waited upon by a committee of citizens who said certain things to him which caused him to give up his engagement there and cancel any other engagements he had in the Creole country. True. One frequently hears references in New Orleans to Creole mammies and Creole Negroes. But the word used in that sense nearly indicates a Negro who has been the servant of Creoles. And who speaks French, Gumbo French, the curious dialect is called. 
Similarly one hears of Creole ponies, these being ponies of the small, strong type used by the Cajun farmers. According to the Louisiana dialect Longfellows, Evangeline was a Cajun, the word being a corruption of Acadian. About a thousand of these unfortunate expatriates arrived in New Orleans between 1765 and 1768. Within a century they had multiplied to 40 times that number, spreading over the entire western part of the state. Much of the temperament, the gaiety, the sensitiveness of New Orleans comes from the Creole. He was Latin enough to be a good deal of a gambler, to love beautiful women, and on slight provocation to draw his sword. The street names of New Orleans not only those of the French Quarter, but of the whole city reflect his various tastes. Many of the streets bear the names of historic figures of the French and Spanish regimes, Rampart Street, formerly the Rudus Ramparts Marks, like the outer boulevards of Paris, the line of the old city wall. Other streets were given pretty feminine names by the old Creole Galants, Suzette, Celeste, Estal, Angeli, and the like. The devout doubtless had their share in the naming of Religious Street, Nun Street, Piety Street, Assumption Street, and Amen Street. The taste for Greek and Roman classicism which developed in France at the time of the Revolution, found its way to Louisiana, and is reflected in New Orleans by streets bearing the names of gods, demigods, the muses and the graces. The pronunciation given to some of these names is curious, Melpomene, instead of being given for syllables is called Melponine. Calliope is similarly Calliope, Euterpe, Euterp, and so on. This, however, is the result not of ignorance, but of a slight corruption of the correct French pronunciations, the Americans having taken their way of pronouncing the names from the French. The Napoleonic Wars are commemorated in the names of Napoleon Avenue, and Austerlitz and Jena Streets, and the visit of Lafayette in the naming for him of both A Street and an Avenue, but perhaps the most striking names of all the old ones were Mystery Street. Madman Street, Love Street Rue de Lamer, Good Children Street Rue des Bons Infants, and above all those two streets in the Faubourg Marigny which old Bernard Marigny amused himself by naming for two games of chance at which, it is said, he had lost a fortune namely Bagatelle and Craps the latter not the game played with dice, but an old-time game of cards. The French spoken by cultivated Creoles bears to the French of modern France about the same relation as the current English of Virginia does to that of England. Creole French is founded largely upon the French of the 17th and early 18th century, just as many of the so-called Americanisms of older parts of the country, including Virginia and New England, are Elizabethan, the early English and French colonists, coming to this country with the language of their times, dropped, over here, into a linguistic backwater, in the mother country's language continued to renew itself as it flowed along, by elisions by the adoption and legitimatizing of slang words as for instance the word, cab, to which Dean Swift objected on the ground that it was slang for, cabriolet, and by all the other means through which our vocabularies are forever changing, but to the colonies these changes were not carried, and such changes as occurred in the French and English of America were, for the most part, separate and distinct as exampled by such creole words as, banquet, for, sidewalk, in place of the French word trottoir and the word, bear, whence comes the American term, mosquito bar. The influence of colloquial French from Canada may also be traced in New Orleans, and the language there was further affected by the strange jargon spoken by the Creole Negro precisely as the English dialect of Negroes in other parts of the South may be said to have affected the speech of all the southern states.
Between the dialect of the Louisiana Cajun and that of the French Canadian of Quebec and Northern New York there is a strong resemblance, but the Creole Negro language is a thing entirely apart, being made up, it is said, partly from French and partly from African word sounds, just as the Gullah of the South Carolina coast is made up from African and English. The one is no more intelligible to a Frenchman than the other to a Londoner. The ignorant Creole Negro wishing to say, I do not understand, would not say, Moije in Northeast comprends pas, but, Mopakonis, similarly for, I am going away. He does not say, Jamonvise, but, Mopakuri, while for, I had a horse. Instead of, Jayuenchable, he will put the statement, Miganishle, it is a dialect lacking mood, tense, and grammar. To this day one may occasionally see in New Orleans and in other lower river towns an old mammy wearing the bandana headdress called a tignon, which, toward the end of the 18th century, was made compulsory for colored women in Louisiana. The need for some such distinguishing racial batch was, it is said, twofold. Yellow sirens from the French West Indies, flocking to New Orleans, were becoming exceedingly conspicuous in dress and adornment. Furthermore one hears stories of wealthy white men fathers of octoroon or quadroon girls, who sent these illegitimate daughters abroad to be educated. The latter, one learns from many sources, were very often beautiful in the extreme, as were also the Domingon girls, and history is full of the tales of the curious, wild, fashionably caparisoned, déclassé circle of society, which came to exist in New Orleans through the presence there of so many alluring women of light color and equally light character. Some of these women, it is said, could hardly be distinguished from brunette whites, and it was largely for this reason that the Tignon was placed by law upon the heads of all women having Negro blood. No morsels from the history of Old New Orleans are more suggestive to the imagination than the hints we get from many sources of wildly dissipated life centering around the notorious quadroon balls or as they were called in their day, cordon blooded balls. An old guidebook informs me that the women who were the great attraction at these functions were, probably the handsomest race of women in the world, and were, besides, splendid dancers and finished dressers. Authorities seem to agree that these balls were exceedingly popular among the young Creole gentlemen, as well as with men visiting the city, and that duels, resulting from quarrels over the women, were of common occurrence. If a Creole had the choice of weapons slender swords called colicky mards were used, whereas pistols were almost invariably selected by Americans. Duels with swords were often fought indoors, but when firearms were to be employed the combatants repaired to one of the customary dueling grounds. Under the fine old live oaks of the city park then out in the country it is said that as many as ten duels have been fought in a single day. Duels having their beginnings at the quadroon balls were, however, often fought in Street Anthony's Garden for the ballroom was in a building now occupied by a sisterhood of colored nuns which stands on Orleans Street, near where it abuts against the garden, this garden, bearing the name of the saint whose temptations have been of such conspicuous interest to painters of the nude, is not named for him so much in his own right, as because he was the patron of that same Padre Antonio de Cedella, already mentioned, who came to New Orleans to institute the Inquisition, but who, after having been sent away by Governor Miro, returned as a secular priest and became much beloved for his good works. Padre Antonio lived in a hut near the garden, and it is he who figures in Thomas Bailey Aldrich's story, Heron Puan's date palm, to the Creole, more than to any other source, may be traced the origin of dueling in the United States, and no city in the country has such a dueling history as New Orleans. 
the American took the practice from the Latin and by the adoption of pistols made the duel a much more serious thing than it had previously been. When swords were employed and first blood usually constituted satisfaction, up to the time of the Civil War the man who refused a challenge became a sort of outcast, and I have been told that even to this day a duel is occasionally fought. Governor Claiborne, first American governor of Louisiana, was a dwellist, and his monument a family monument in the annex of the Old Basin Street Division of St. Louis Cemetery bears upon one side an inscription in memory of his brother-in-law, Mike A. Lewis, who fell in a duel, January 14, 1804, the year in his History of Louisiana, tells a story of six young French noblemen who, one night, paired off and fought for no reason whatever save out of bravado, two of them were killed, two famous characters of New Orleans, about the middle of the last century, were Major Joe Howell, a brother-in-law of Jefferson Davis, and Major Henry, a daredevil soldier of fortune who had filibustered in Nicaragua and fought in the Mexican War, one day while drinking together they quarreled, and as a result a duel was arranged to take place the same afternoon. Henry kept on drinking, but Howell went to sleep and slept until it was time to go to the dueling ground, when he took one cocktail, and departed, feeling that a duel over a disagreement the occasion for which neither contestant could remember, was the height of folly. Friends intervened, and finally succeeded in getting Major Henry to say that the fight could be called off if Howell would apologize. For what? He was asked. Don't know and don't care, returned the old warrior, as Howell would not apologize. Navy revolvers were produced and the two faced each other, the understanding being that they should begin at ten paces with six barrels loaded, firing at will and advancing. At the word, fire, both shot and missed, but Howell copped his revolver with his right thumb and fired again immediately, wounding Henry in the arm. Henry then fired and missed a second time, while Howell's third shot struck his antagonist in the abdomen. Wounded as he was, Henry managed to fire again, narrowly missing the other, who was not only a giant in size, but was a conspicuous mark, bowing to the white clothing which he wore. At this Howell advanced a step and took steady aim, and he would almost certainly have killed his opponent had not his own second reached out and thrown his pistol up, sending the shot wild. This occurred after the other side has cried, stop, as it had been agreed should be done in case either man was badly wounded. A foul was consequently claimed, the seconds drew their pistols, and a general battle was narrowly averted. After many weeks Henry recovered, a great number of historic duels were over politics. Such a one was the fight which took place in 1843, between Mr. Weston, editor of the Baton Rouge Gazette, and Mr. Alcilo Branch, a Creole gentleman who had been Speaker of the Louisiana House of Representatives, and was running for Congress. Mr. LaBranche was one of the few public men in the state who had never fought a duel, and in the course of a violent political campaign, Weston twitted him on the subject in the columns of the Gazette, trying to make him out a coward. Soon after the insulting article appeared, the two men met in the billiard room of the old St. Charles Hotel, and when LaBranche demanded an apology, and was refused, he struck Weston with a cane, or a cue, and knocked him down. A duel was, of course, arranged the weapons selected being double-barreled shotguns loaded with ball, that the first discharge Weston's head and coat were punctured by bullets, he demanded a second exchange of shots, which resulted about as before his own shots going wild, while those of his opponent narrowly missed him, Weston, however, obstinately insisted that the duel be continued, and the guns were loaded for the third time, 
In the next discharge the editor received a scalp wound. It was now agreed by all present that matters had gone far enough, but Westong remained obdurate in his intention to kill or be killed, and in the face of violent protests, demanded that the guns again be loaded. The next exchange of shots proved to be the last. Weston let both barrels go without effect, and fell to the ground shot through the lungs, taken to the maze on descent. He was in such agony that he begged a friend to finish the work by shooting him through the head. Within a few hours he was dead. The old guidebook from which I gather these items cites, also, cases in which duels were fought over trivial matters, such, for instance, as a mildly hostile newspaper criticism of an operatic performance, and an argument between a Creole and a Frenchman over the greatness of the Mississippi River. Professor Brander Matthews tells me of an episode in which the wit exhibited by a Creole lawyer, in the course of a case in a New Orleans court, caused him to be challenged, the opposing counsel. Likewise a Creole, was a great dandy. He appeared in an immaculate white suit and boiled shirt, but the weather was warm, and after he had spoken for perhaps half an hour his shirt was wilted, and he asked an adjournment, the adjournment over, he reappeared in a fresh shirt, but this too wilted presently, whereupon another adjournment was taken, at the end of this he again reappeared wearing a third fresh shirt, and in it managed to complete his plea, it now became the other lawyer's turn, he arose and, speaking with the utmost gravity, addressed the jury, gentlemen, he said Professor Matthews tells it in French, I shall divide my speech into three shirts, he then announced, first shirt and made his first point, this accomplished, he paused briefly, then proclaimed, second shirt, and followed with his second point, then, third and last shirt, and after completing his argument sat down, the delighted jury gave him the verdict, but his witticism involved him in a duel with the Worsted Advocate. The result of this duel Professor Matthews does not tell, but if the wags call it Kimard was as swift and penetrating as his wit, we may surmise that his opponent of the Code Napoleon and the Code Duello had a fourth shirt spoiled. Chapter LVII From Antiques to Pirates The numerous antique shops of the French Quarter, with their grey, undulating floors and their piled-up, dusty litter of old furniture, plate, glass, and china and the equally numerous old bookstores, with their piles of French publications, their shadowy corners, their pleasant ancient bindings and their stale smell, are peculiarly reminiscent of similar establishments in Paris, that Eugene Field knew these shops well we have reason to know by at least two of his poems, in one, The Discreet Collector, he tells us that, down south there is a curio shop unknown to many men, thereat do I intend to stop when I am south again, the narrow street through which to go a hog. I know it well, and maybe you would like to know but no I will not tell, but later, when filled with remorse over his extravagance in blowing twenty dollars in by nine o'clock a.m., he reveals the location of his favorite establishment, saying, in Royal Street near Condy there is a lovely curio shop, and there, one palmy fateful morn, it was my chance to stop so that, at least, is the neighborhood in which he learned that, the curio collector is so blindly lost in sin that he doesn't spend his money he simply blows it in, in his verses called, Dr. Sam, Field touched on another fascinating side of Creole Negro life, the mysterious beliefs and rites of voodooism or, as it is more often spelled, voodooism, until a few years ago it used to be possible for a visitor with a pull in New Orleans to see some of the voodoo performances and to have a work made for him but the police have dealt so severely with those who believe in this barbarous nonsense, that it is practiced in these times only with the utmost secrecy. Voodooism was brought by the early slaves from the Congo, 
but in Louisiana the Negroes probably desiring to imitate the religion of their white masters appropriated some of the Roman Catholic saints and made them subject to the great serpent, or grand zombie, who was the Vaudou God. These saints, however, are given Vaudou names, Saint Michael, for example, being Blank Danny, and Saint Peter, Papa Liba. This situation is the antithesis of that to be found in Brittany, where Druidical beliefs, handed down for generations among the peasants, may now be faintly traced running like a not alien threads through the strong fabric of Roman Catholicism. Vaudouism is not, however, to be dignified by the name, religion. It is superstition founded upon charms and hoodies. It is witchcraft of the maddest kind, involving the most hideous performances. Moreover, it is said that a hoodoo is something of which a French Negro is very much afraid, and that his fear is justifiable, for the reason that the throwing of a wanga, or curse, may also involve the administering of subtle poisons made from herbs. Legend is rich with stories of Marie Vaud, the Vaudou queen, who lived long ago in New Orleans, and of love and death accomplished by means of Vaudou charms. Charms are brought about in various ways, among these the burning of black candles accompanied by certain performances, brings evil upon those against whom a work is made, while blue candles have to do with love charms. It may also be noted that love powders can be purchased nowadays in drug stores in New Orleans. In the days of long ago the great Negro gathering place used to be Congo Square now Beauregard Square and here, on Sunday nights, wild dances used to occur the Vendula and Kalinda and sinister spells were cast. Later the Vaudus went to more secluded spots on the shores of Lake Pontchartrain, and on Street John's Eve, which is their great occasion. Many of the whites of the city used to go to the lake in hopes of discovering a Vaudu seance, and being allowed to see it. A friend of mine, who has seen several of these seances, says that they are unbelievably weird and horrible. They will make a gumbo, put a snake in it, and then devour it, and they will wring a cat's neck and drink its blood, and of course, Along with these loathsome ceremonies, go incantations, chants, dances, and frenzies, sometimes ending in catalepsies. There are weird stories of white women of good family who have believed in Vaudou, and have taken part in the rites, and there are other tales of evil spells, such as that of the Creole bride of long ago, whose affianced had been the lover of a quadroon girl, a hairdresser. The hairdresser when she came to do the bride's hair for the wedding, gave her a bouquet of flowers. The bride smelled the bouquet and died at the church door. It was, I think, in an old bookstore on Royal Street or else on Chart that I found the tattered guidebook to which I referred in an earlier chapter. It was edited and compiled by several leading writers of the New Orleans Press, and published in 1885, and it contains an introductory recommendation by George W. Cable which is about the finest guarantee that a book on New Orleans can have. Mr. Cable, of course. More than all the rest of the people who have written of New Orleans put together, placed the city definitely in literature, and it is interesting, if somewhat saddening, to recall that for lifting the city into the world of Belles Lettres, for adorning it and preserving it in such volumes as Old Creole Days, The Grandy Signs, Madame Delphine, and other valuable, truthful, and charming works, he was roundly abused by his own fellow townsmen, far from attacking Mr. Cable. New Orleans ought to build him a monument, and I am glad to say that, though the monument is not there yet, the city does seem to have come to its senses, and that the prophet is no longer without honor in his own country. Some further leaves are added to the literary laurels of the city by what Thomas Bailey Aldrich has written of it, 
and the wreath is made the greater by the fact that in New Orleans was born the only literary man in New York, Professor Brander Matthews, another distinguished name in letters, connected with the place, is that of Lothkadiel Hearn, who was at one time a reporter on a New Orleans newspaper, and who not only wrote about the French Quarter, but collected many proverbs of the Creoles in a book which he called Gondozibis, in his little volume, Chita. Hearn described the land of lakes, mines, and shanires, which forms a strip between the city and the gulf, and which, with its wild birds, wild scenery, and wild storms, and its extraordinary population of hunters and fishermen Cajuns, Italians, Japanese, Spanish, Kanakas, Filipinos, French, and half-breed Indians, all intermarrying is the strangest, most outlandish section of this country I had ever visited, the Filipinos who introduced shrimp fishing in this region, building villages on stilts, like those of their own islands, were not there when Hearn wrote Chita, nor was Ludwig grazing diamond-backed terrapin on Grand Isle, but the live oaks, draped with sad Spanish moss, lined the mines as they do today, and the alligators, turtles and snakes were there, and the tall marsh grass, so like bamboo, fringed the banks as it does now, and water hyacinth carpeted the pools, and the savage tropical storms came sweeping in now and then, from the gulf, flooding the entire country, tearing everything up by the roots, then receding, carrying the floating debris back with them to the salt sea. One has to see what they call a slight storm in that country, to know what a great storm there must be. Hearn surely saw storms there, for in Chita he describes with terrifying vividness that historic tempest which, in 1856, obliterated that one stroke. Last Island, with its fashionable hotel and all the guests of that hotel, I have seen a little thunderstorm in Barataria Bay and I do not want to see a big one. I have seen brown men who, in the storm of 1915 which did a million dollars worth of damage in New Orleans, floated about the Baratarias for days, upon the roofs of houses, and I have seen little children, half Italian, half Filipino, who were saved by being carried by their parents into the branches of an old live oak where they waited until good Horace Harvey, the little father of the Baratarias, came down there in his motor yacht, the Distrihan, rescued them, warmed them, fed them, and gave them back to a life. I was told in New Orleans that there were 10 seconds in that storm when the wind reached a velocity of 140 miles per hour at the mouth of the Mississippi, that it blew for 4 hours at the rate of 90 miles and that the lowest barometrical reading ever recorded in the United States 28.11 was recorded in New Orleans during this hurricane. Of the summer climate of New Orleans I know nothing at first hand, and judging from what people have told me, that is all I want to know. The winter climate sweeped me very well while I was there, although the boast that grass is green and roses bloom all the year round, does not imply such intense heat as some people may suppose. Furthermore, I believe that the thermometer has once or twice in the history of the city dropped low enough to kill any ordinary rose, for a friend of mine told me a story about some water pipes that froze and burst during an unprecedented cold snap which occurred some years ago. He said that an English colonel, whom he knew, was visiting the city at the time and that, finding himself unable to get water in his bathtub, he sent out for several cases of Apollinaries and with true British phlegm proceeded to empty them into the tub and get in among the bubbles, still another figure having to do with literature, and also with the history of New Orleans, is Jean Lafitte, known as a pirate, whose life is said to have inspired Byron's poem, 
the Corsair. There was a time, long ago, when Lafitte, together with his brother, his doughty lieutenant, Dominique and his rabble of Baratarians, caused New Orleans a great deal of annoyance, but like many other doubtful characters, they have, since their death, become entirely picturesque, and the very idea that Lafitte was not a first-class blood and thunder pirate is as distasteful to the people of New Orleans today, as his being any kind of a near pirate at all, used to be to their ancestors, nevertheless Frank R. Stockton, who made a great specialty of pirates, says of Lafitte, he never committed an act of piracy in his life, he was before he went to Barataria a blacksmith, and knew no more about sailing a ship or even the smallest kind of a boat than he knew about the proper construction of a sonnet, it is said of him that he was never at sea but twice in his life, once when he came from France, and once when he left this country, and on neither occasion did he sail under the Jolly Roger, according to Stockton, Lafitte, when he gave up his blacksmith shop in which he is said to have made some of the fine wrought iron balcony railings which still adorn the old town, and went to Barataria, became nothing more nor less than a fence for pirates and privateers, taking their booty, smuggling it up to New Orleans, and selling it there on commission, but if the fact that he was not a gory-handed freebooter is against Lafitte, there is one great thing in his favor, when the British were making ready to attack New Orleans in 1814, they tried both to bribe and to browbeat Lafitte into joining forces with them, as the American government was planning, at this very time, a punitive expedition against him, it would perhaps have seemed good policy for the pseudo-pirate to have accepted the British offer, but what Lafitte did was to go up and report the matter at New Orleans giving the city the first authentic information of the contemplated attack, and offering to join with his men in the defense, in exchange for amnesty. A good many people, however, did not believe his story, and a good many others thought it beneath the dignity of the government to treat with a man of his dubious occupation. Therefore poor Lafitte was not listened to, but, upon the contrary, only succeeded in stirring up trouble for himself, for an expedition was immediately sent against him, his settlement at Barataria on the Gulf, about 40 miles below the city was demolished and the inhabitants driven to the woods and swamps, but in spite of this discouraging experience, Lafitte would not join the British, and it came about that when the Battle of New Orleans was about to be fought, Andrew Jackson, who had a short time before referred to Lafitte and his men as a band of hellish banditti, was glad to accept their aid, Dominique with his fine pirate name commanded a gun and the others fought according to the best piratical tradition. After the battle was won, the Baratarians were pardoned by President Madison. Incidentally it may be remarked here that the American line of defense on the plains of Chalmette, below the city, had been indicated.